What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Our Bibles, we're going to Isaiah chapter 40 today. We're going to be in verses 9 through 24 in the middle of chapter 40. When you find that, let's stand up together. Let's recognize as we stand that God's word is no ordinary book, but this is the very inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of our covenant God. This is the very word of God given to his people, truth in abundance. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 24 Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, heralds of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those That are with young. Verse 12 Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like a fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of of the earth. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. 
Amen. You may be seated. Five times Isaiah says to behold. Behold is not a word that we commonly use much these days. Uh, You can actually Google search a word and it'll show you its frequency over time and how it either rises in usage or diminishes. We don't use the word behold much anymore though. Apparently it It was used the most in the early 1800s. Today, we barely use it at all. It's dropped to almost an all-time low, the use of the word behold. Superficially, of course, it simply means to see something. It's a word that has to do with taking in a vision or a sight with your eyes. But we almost never use it anymore. It means to see or to watch or to look, but it's fallen out of favor. We almost exclusively reserve the usage of the word behold to divine things, and I think that's appropriate because nobody says, for instance, I'm going to go behold a movie tonight, or I can't come over to your house because I'm going to behold my son's soccer game, or nobody says I have a hobby of bird beholding. We use the words watch or see or look in all of those occasions, but we don't almost almost ever use the word behold. Now, maybe you see something really marvelous. Maybe you see a rainbow, maybe you see a a thunderstorm, maybe you see a tornado even, and sometimes we might dare to use the word behold on such occasions. But even if today, even if today you were coming out of the church and you saw, let's say, the most beautiful double rainbow, you ever see a double rainbow? You would still probably tell somebody that you saw it rather than you beheld it on the way home. Behold seems to go further than ordinary looking ordinary scene. When you behold something, it's as though you take it into your eyes, but it goes deeper than that into the mind, changes something in the way you think. And when you're really beholding something of divine majesty, it goes further than just the mind. It goes all the way into the heart. And so we can define beholding as something like soul deep seeing. Let's just use that as a definition this morning. To behold is to see as a soul deep level. And that's exactly what Isaiah has told us to do five times in this passage this morning. Did you hear him when I read him off? Five times, 40 verse 9, 40 10, twice in that verse, 40 15, two more times. And what is Isaiah beckoning us to behold? He's beckoning us to behold the Lord God. In the Hebrew, hine elohehem, mean behold your God, take him in into the eyes, soul deep level, into the mind, into the heart. Contemplate his greatness, consider his power. We're going to do those things in just a few minutes, but let me set up a little bit of historical context here. For most of the book of Isaiah, as you recall, the first 40 chapters, really 39 chapters, primarily Isaiah is speaking to his own day, in his own age and time, warning the people of Jerusalem and Judah about the incoming Assyrian invasion. We've covered all that material. We've already done that as a church. We got to the climactic moment where God delivered the people of Jerusalem from the siege of Sennacherib. We saw God save his people in a mighty way. And now, for the rest of the book, Isaiah, in a sense, is lifting up his eyes towards the horizon, looking looking less and less in his own historical situation, more and more outwards. 
And we're going to see something later, the incoming invasion of Babylon, another nation. We're going to look forward to the coming of Messiah in the coming chapters in 42 and following. And even towards the end of the book, Isaiah is even looking towards eternity itself. So you might picture the whole book working something like this. Isaiah starts off looking straight down at his own feet in his own day, time, and situation. And as the book goes on, Isaiah lifts up his gaze more and more towards what Messiah is going to do in his kingdom, bringing in the peace and justice of, e- of eternal judgment and righteousness. So that's just kind of think of Isaiah's gaze looking up. And, and today in chapter 40, Isaiah is going to give to us a sermon. And that's what, that's what prophets do. Prophets preach poetic sermons using inspired, Holy Ghost-inspired words to try to get the people to see, but more than just see, to behold with the eyes and into the mind and all the way to soul-deep level. And that's the point of chapter 40. He's begging you to finally see something real in your life. and Stop merely looking at the superficial surface of everything. Look further into the greatness of God. And so today, the outline is going to be incredibly simple. We're going to do the two things that Isaiah tells us to do. We're going to spend uh, two-thirds of the sermon, let's just say two-thirds, beholding the greatness of God. So that'll be point number one. Behold the greatness of God. If you want to think of it like that, uh, we're contemplating his infinite nature, the infinite nature of the holiness of God. And then secondly, towards the end, the last third of the sermon or so, Isaiah also tells us to behold something else, and this may be a surprise, but he's going to ask us to behold the smallness of man or the finitude of man. So part one, the infinite nature of God, part two, the finite nature of man, and that's what we're going to try to behold this morning. So number one, the greatness of God. Behold the greatness of God. Let's talk first of all about his power. Now, I'd I'd love for you to please have your Bible open with me as I work through this. A lot of this is just going to go over your head if you're not looking at the verses with me as we go through this chapter, chapter 40, verses 9 to 24. So Isaiah, first of all, mentions the power, the strength of God. Look at verse 10. He says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might." And his arm rules for him. Now, obviously, arm is anthropomorphic language when we assign to God an attribute of human bodily composition, right? Because God doesn't have arms, so to speak. He is infinite, eternal in nature. He is a spirit, the great God is. And so there's no physical arms, biceps flexing, triceps flexing in heaven. This is a metaphor for the power of God. And what Isaiah is saying here is consider what a great God it would take then to create the heavens and the earth with the word of his mouth God speaks reality into existence in the creation right God speaks light and light emits into the darkness of the void of nothingness God creates using the words of his mouth he speaks truth into reality God has created this world this incredible world think of the power of a God that it would take to 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 make a black hole for instance I watched an interesting YouTube video about what in the world is a black hole. It's a power so great, it crushes everything, even light, into one tiny little speck. And God made that. Think of the power of, of God as, as he brings the storms across the land. Think of the power of God as he spins the tornadoes across the plains. Think of the power of God as he, as he takes the, uh, the, the very surfaces of the earth 
twisting and crushing it into the earthquakes that we experience that rip apart our buildings. Think of the power of God when he sends the lightning bolts. All of this is supposed to overwhelm the mind with the majesty and the strength of God. Paul in Romans chapter 1 says it's something like this. This is Romans chapter 1. Paul says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. If you don't see this, you're without excuse. And what did Paul say we ought to see without excuse? If we don't get it, we're dense beyond recognition. We are dense and dull of the mind. If we don't see this, Paul says his invisible attributes, namely, first, his eternal power and his also divine nature. So we don't want to be without excuse. We don't want to be dull dark-hearted, dark-thinking men. We want to see what God has made and reckon with the power of the one who made it. It's exactly why you walk out of your house on a dark night and you look up into the skies and you see the beauty of the stars. Perhaps if it's dark enough, you can even see the formation of the Milky Way if you're able to do that. And if you don't get that a powerful, strong God made this, you're missing the point. You are without excuse if you don't see his power, his strength, his divine nature. I remember, I think I told you the story once, but I'll tell it again. I remember when I was in high school, I finally thought I was stronger than my dad, senior, wrestling team captain, set a school record. I'll brag about that one on another time, but finally thought I could beat my dad in arm wrestling. I remember I challenged my dad to an arm wrestling match, and my dad smooshed my knuckles into the coffee table. You can still see the print of the back of my hand on that coffee table. Never challenged my dad again in an arm wrestling match. And Isaiah and Paul are saying here that you can't deal with the strength of God. He would utterly crush and overwhelm you if you tried. 185,000 Assyrians mocked the greatness of the power of God, and the Lord laid them flat on the battlefield with their cold, dead hands still crutching, clutching the swords that were of no use and help to them. Remember that chapter? What was that chapter? What was that 37? Egyptians, same fate, drowned on the sea. Consider, behold, take it in, soul deep, the power of God. Now he goes on next then to his wisdom. Look at verse 12. Not just his power, but also his wisdom. Look at this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who, verse 13, has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Verse 14, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Just notice how Isaiah uses this, this prophetic pattern of asking these who has plus marvel questions. Who has, and then he mentions something great and beyond all capability, right? As I'm studying this passage to get ready for the sermon, I, I noticed that this pattern is used elsewhere in the Bible. Where else? Think, think for a moment with me. That's right. I already saw it. Where else do you see this who has plus marvel pattern in the Old Testament? Job, exactly. Job, probably one of the oldest books of the Old 
Old Testament based on the Hebrew style. Possible that Isaiah may have read the book of Job at some point in his life. In fact, he even uses a couple of the same questions here related to who gave God any advice. Whom did he consult? Verse 14. Answers, obviously no one. Now, in the book of Job, we don't have time to go through that this morning, but if we did, you would see a man who's suffering tremendously in Job, right? And his friends are so wise, though. They know everything. His friends do. Very wise. All scholars, Job's friends. And for, what is it, like 38 chapters, these wise men pontificate on wisdom and justice and uprightness and sovereignty and human responsibility, like philosophers, they speak, rebuking and confuting one another's wisdom. And then at the end of the book, you know what happens. God steps in in Job chapter 38, and for four chapters, God absolutely excoriates Job and his friends for their utter lack of wisdom, right? Remember this? And in so doing, God asks the same kinds of questions that Isaiah is beckoning us to consider here. For instance, Job chapter 38, who determined the measurements? Surely you know, he's talking about the foundations of the earth. Who laid its cornerstone, Job 38? Who shut in the sea in its doors? Uh, Who has cleft the channel for the torrents of rain? Who has given birth to the frost of the heavens? Who can number the clouds by the wisdom? You see that pattern, who has plus marvel. And after getting this over and over again by the end of the book, Job gets the point, and so should we. Job 42, listen to this. Job finally just obliterated on his knees with all human wisdom, been crushed By the wisdom of God, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then he says, listen, hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. What happened to Job? He finally beheld. Finally, soul deep level vision and comprehension And then Job's response is, Now that my eyes have seen you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the only proper response to the wisdom of God. Who's the smartest person you know? Think about that for a moment. Maybe somebody who gave you good counsel on the front porch, on the rocking chair. Maybe one of your professors that you had in college. Uh, I know a lot of smart people. You probably know a few as well. Uh, in my circles, I, I, I traffic with people that have uh, PhDs and doctorates. A lot of my friends are professors and theologians, people who've written books. I know some pretty smart people. And I'll, I'll tell you this about smart people. Don't forget. Doctors, let's say. Uh, people who get their PhD, there, there's two ways that you can do this. One, you can be a generalist. And a generalist, don't ever forget, a generalist knows this much about a lot of things. He knows a little about a lot. And then you got specialists. And specialists, they know a lot about a little. Okay? But either way, there's a lot of a little, even in the smartest people you know. So don't ever be impressed with people and their wisdom and their degrees. Because nobody, absolutely nobody, 
knows all things. It is impossible to master every field of knowledge, mathematics and science and philosophy and logic and history and literature and biology and physics. You cannot know a lot about a lot. That's impossible for the human mind, right? And anybody who pretends that they do is obviously a fool. Plato, one of the great philosophers, said that he was the wisest, no, Socrates actually, said he was the wisest man in the world because he's the only one to admit his ignorance. Pretty smart. That's a, good, that's a good first step. And Paul, picking up on the same theme from Isaiah, this is Romans chapter 11. Just listen to this. I know you don't have time to turn there yourself. Uh, Romans 11, Paul actually quotes either Isaiah or Job because Paul goes into this, this, this doxology in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and following. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. You see that? The wisdom and the knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments. How unsearchable his ways. Verse 34 of chapter 11. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever been his counselor? Who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory of God forever. You cannot inform God of one single datum. That's the singular of data, right? Data is plural. You cannot inform God of one instance of datum that he does not know. It's infinitely wise. And then Isaiah says next, behold also his justice. Look at verse 14 of our main text. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 14. Whom did he consult? Obvious rhetorical answer, no one. Who made him understand? Again, no one. Who, look at this, who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Justice is a word we use a lot these days. Talking about justice constantly in our culture. Everybody thinks they understand what justice is. Everybody thinks they have a pretty good a central comprehension of what it would mean to live in a just society. Everybody has their opinions on these matters. Uh, forget about the fact that justice is actually a pretty complex topic if you think about all that's implied in justice, civics and government and ethics and uh, sexuality and taxation and just war and penal law and violence. There's a lot involved in justice and everybody believes that they are the one person who has it figured out, Right? Everybody thinks things, they may not say it out loud, but they would say things like, if I were God, I wouldn't have allowed that. Well, that's because you'll never be God, and you'll never comprehend all that God comprehends. You put uh, 12 people in a jury box, and you give them the most fair system in the entire world. You give them the most fair legal setting. You bring all of the testimony before them possible and you can still have 12 people split on what would be the right and just thing to do. Take any court case in the United States. Think of some famous court case, whatever it is, and people are going to have a variance of opinions on that matter. It's not implicitly obvious what is just. We have a sense of justice, just like we have a sense of smell or a sense of balance. If somebody tips you over, you feel you're off and you correct yourself. We know that there should be justice, but the problem is we often disagree on what it would mean to live in a just society. Nobody knows. Do you? You've got this figured out? 
And the best evidence that our society is utterly and completely confused on what it means to have justice is that most of us totally disagree on what it would look like if we even created a just society. Um, we used to have slavery. That was wicked. We changed that. Then we had unjust laws related to segregation. We changed that. Uh, now we're trying to live into Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision of colorblindness. That was an improvement in my view. Now we're headed back to segregation. What are we doing? No society that legalizes abortion has the right to lecture anybody about what is just. If, if we are that corrupt of mind and of heart that we legalize the murdering of our children, then what does the society even know about the first thing of justice? It's almost as though, check this out, it's almost as though there should be a law that's higher than the opinions of men. It's almost as though there ought to be a law that transcends the swirling trash bin of man's ideas of what a just society might be like. It's almost as though there should be a divine law. And in fact, there is. And God says, I claim justice. I am the source of all true justice. And so Isaiah says, stare into that at a soul-deep level. So we've spoken of God's might and his wisdom and his justice, but there's one more thing that Isaiah it tells us to behold before we move on to part two, and that is then, and this might be counterintuitive from everything we just said, behold also the gentleness of God. Look at verse 11. I skipped this one on purpose because I wanted this to stand out in your mind. If you have a God who is mighty and a God who is all-wise and a God who is utterly just, such that you are completely undressed in your unrighteousness compared to his justice, who has every right to crush you by his righteousness, because he's righteous and we're not, it's a really good thing that he's also gentle. And praise God for his gentleness. Look at verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently Lead those that are with young. Thank goodness for the gentleness and the mercies of our God. Notice the language here. In verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather. Look at the imagery here. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them where? Where does it say? In his bosom. That is to say, at his chest, at his heart. Behold the mercies of of the gentleness and the kindness and the favor of our God who actually loves us despite ourselves. I can't help but think of a couple of passages here that have already been mentioned so far in our worship service. The 23rd Psalm for one, indicative of God's mercies for us. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside gentle waters. Why does he do this for us? Because he loves us. Behold the greatness of the gentleness of God and then uh, Elder Bill also mentioned too, John 10, where Christ calls himself the good shepherd who loves and defends and preserves his flock because he cares for them. Behold your God in his might and his wisdom and his justice and in his gentleness. Now, before we wrap up here, 
Isaiah also wants us to look at something else. Uh, as, as though we had anything left to look elsewhere after we've just been laid flat by all of this greatness of God. Uh, but the only thing then we can do is turn inward and then secondly, behold your own smallness and your own finite nature. So Isaiah then turns the corner to behold yourself. Look at yourself. Look at your smallness. Look at the smallness of the nations. Verse 15, let's get into this. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Isaiah just said, did you hear that? The nations, plural, are like a drop in the bucket. They are nothing before him. What do we do as human beings? We war to have the power of the nations. Political power. Political will. Control. Mastery. It's what everybody wants. That is the thing that our culture is fracturing about right now. It's the, it's the will to power. It's, it's war for control. We believe falsely, but we like to think that we steer the nations. We will be in control if we can somehow uh, put ourselves in that ranking position of authority. But what does God say? You are a drop in the bucket. Suppose you had the greatest position. Suppose you were the president of the United States or the king of England or whatever it is. What are you before God? You are a drop in the bucket and less than that. God can take the entire bucket. He can spill it out in the yard if he wants. How about that? Every nation that comes to be, he can terminate at his will. Where is Assyria now? Where is Babylon? Where is ancient Rome? Where is ancient Israel, modern Israel, China, Russia? Do you think that your greatest threat are these other nations? Is that our greatest existential threat, these other nations? No, the greatest threat that you're facing right now is the holiness of a righteous God. That's your existential threat in crisis. No king, his name can survive next to the greatness of the name of Jesus. Notice also man's finite nature in verse 22. Now look at this. You ready? Brace yourself. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. What are you? You're a grasshopper. How do you like that? <laughs> I don't like to think of myself as a grasshopper. I think of myself as something maybe slightly better than an insect. How about you? There's an Old Testament motif happening here that uh, you might have to remember though. Go back to... Uh, these stories of Moses and Aaron, remember they sent the spies into the land to look through the promised land and they came back with the reports and they had seen the Amalekites, they'd seen the strength of another nation that was mightier than they and most of them except for Caleb came back absolutely terrified by the Amalekites and what did they say in that moment? They said, we're like grasshoppers compared to them and Isaiah's point is, not much has changed. Now he's not trying to insult you I promise he's not. Actually, the Bible has quite lofty things to say about the worth and dignity of human beings. For one, we are the only things in all of creation made in the image of God. So there's that. But lest you begin to think much of yourself, 
Lest you begin to think highly of yourself, lest you begin to think that you are the center of the world and all things orbit around your reality, Isaiah reminds you, we're just grasshoppers. We're so small. We're so weak. We're so relatively insignificant. Grasshoppers comes in hordes by the millions and the billions, and you're just one of them. We tend to think of ourselves as the most important person in the world, and we tend to think of our problems as insurmountable. Think of your greatest problem right now. Can you identify it? What is it? Maybe it's a relationship problem. Maybe it's a project at work. Maybe it's a health concern that you're going through right now. All of these things seem like grand, massive obstacles in our lives. And to him, to God, and all of his greatness and all of his glory, these things are absolutely nothing. You're not the most important person in the world, not even close. It's him. It is he who controls the nations. He is the one. Here is the key of meaning and purpose in life. No one can ever attain greatness in this life who actually believes he is. I'll say it another way. Until you reckon with the utter fact of your own insignificance, you're never going to lead a meaningful life. It's impossible. You can never attain to greatness unless you first of all reckon with his greatness and you'll never be significant until you first of all reckon with your own insignificance, ironically. And then Isaiah finishes up and and we'll end here with the brevity of our lives. Look at verse 24. The brevity of our lives. Now here he recovers an image that he already brought up earlier in the chapter. You probably remember uh, this famous verse from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 7. It was our verse of the month last month. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, verse 7. Now, he takes that image, and here he expands on it in verse 24. So with that picture in mind, listen to verse 24. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, Scarcely their stem has taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. You can almost picture a dandelion here when it dries out and it turns into its little seed orb. You see those in your lawn? When all the beauty of the yellow flower fades and now it's dry, dusty seed, you pick it up and you blow on it and what happens to it? It scatters. And that's your life. There's a metaphor for the duration of human life. It is here today, gone tomorrow. So, you hold up the relative finitude of man compared to the infinity of God. And if you don't reckon with that fact, you have not beheld anything. Isaiah We'll finish with this, I promise, this time. At 21, he finishes up with a series of questions. They're either disorienting questions or they're actually very orienting, depending on your point of view. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And sadly, some have not. 
Now, as we move through the rest of this book, the book of Isaiah, there's so much glory here. There's so much gospel coming for us in the coming chapters. Trust me, you are going to love the succeeding chapters of the book of Isaiah. In chapter 42, we're going to meet the suffering servant who comes. The suffering servant is going to be a picture, a forepicture of Messiah who is to come. And herein, we're going to see the absolute marvel of the gospel that the greatness of Almighty God has come to the smallness of man to redeem us through his love. I don't want you to miss that. Don't miss it. Behold his greatness. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.